uh, just a word about uh, the situation and where we're at. Uh, wow, this thing is changing so rapidly it's hard to keep up, is it not? Uh, when they uh, began to talk about limiting uh, groups of people, uh, I went home last Sunday, I, I read about 10 or 12 articles and prayed and thought, well, you know, what can we do? Got in touch with all of the deacons and proposed that we not have the small group where people would be, you know, close together, uh, that we could spread out in here and kind of keep our distance from one another. And so we did that. But what to do now? Uh, you know, Jim and I talked. Our plan was to just isolate ourselves at home for two weeks and watch basketball. <laughs> well, yeah, that didn't work, did it? See, I, I was going to watch golf and basketball. Well, that's out now. So we're, we're trying to decide what is the best course of action. We want to do two things. We want to honor God, and we want to protect as much as we can uh, the people of God. That is our task, to love God and to love our neighbors. Uh, and in that spirit... You know, what, it, what is our best course of action? And, and uh, here's the deal as well. I've read a lot this week on social media criticizing churches that have canceled or criticizing those that have not. You're not more holy because you've not canceled. And you're not less righteous because you did. Every, every pastor that I know has agonized over these decisions and made the best decision that they thought they could in terms of doing just what I said, honoring God and, and honoring and loving their neighbors. And so, with that in mind, given the, 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 the fluid nature of the situation and, and where we're at, you may have noticed that I'm one of the oldest people here this morning. Uh, there's not many people, too many people here. There's no one here over 80 this morning, not many over 75, not many over 70. That's a good thing, actually. I believe that's a good thing. Some people called me yesterday and said, we don't think we're coming. I said, I agree totally. You know, you, you, know, you don't want to get infected. You don't want to infect someone in case. I know for a fact, and you probably, you may know as well, I know of two possible cases in the county right now, at least two. There may be a lot more. I, no one knows. That's the thing with this thing. You've got a 14-day window from the time someone is infected until they may show symptoms. And of course, people who are asymptomatic are the most dangerous. You know, if you don't think you're sick, then you don't, you know, you might not take the precautions. Oh, okay. All of that to say this. We have decided that we will not have any services next week. Uh, that'll give us two weeks to look at the situation, to see what's happening, and then to make a decision toward the end of the next week, you know, uh, before the 29th, to make a decision as to exactly what we should do. Well, every day brings more revelation, more light about what the situation is. So for right now, though, we will not have any services the 22nd next week. Uh, we will, if we if we meet the 29th, and I'm hoping that we will, uh, then we still will not have 
the smaller groups, the Sunday school. Uh, so just uh, be praying about this. Also, I, and I wanted this to go out on the podcast, we have a lot of missionaries around the world that are in difficult circumstances at best. And when you bring in this kind of pandemic, then it puts them in an extremely hard place. Please be praying for them. You know, we've got James and his family uh, in, in the subcontinent. We've got Kevin and Denise in the Far East. And, you know, those are ones that we're connected with directly. Uh, be praying for all of those people who are serving in other places, maybe where hygiene is, is not as good as it is here, where there's not medical facilities, uh, they're in a dangerous place. So be praying for them by all means. Pray for one another and pray for all of those who are infected. Uh, in case you're interesting, interested, there is a site called Worldometer. I, I go to it a lot because it keeps up with statistics. How many people are being born? How many are dying? What world population is? Of course, that clock's moving like a, you know. <laughs> but it also has now a special page for coronavirus. And it, will, and it changes every 24 hours at zero GMT, uh, Greenwich Mean Time. It will update how many cases there are worldwide, uh, in case you're interested in that, th that sort of thing. And it breaks it down by country also to tell you how many people are infected in the country um, so be in prayer trust the Lord and and take some common sense precautions so Romans chapter 1 verses 24 through 27 one of my favorite people to go to for quotes always to me kind of appropriate and pithy and, and can be very, very amusing. For instance, Wilde once said, be yourself. Everyone else is already taken. That's good advice. He also said, I can resist everything except temptation. He said, experience is simply the name that we give our mistakes. That is true as well. Oscar Wilde once said also, and I don't know where he was reflecting more on the divine nature or the human nature, but he said, when the gods wish to punish us, they answer our prayers. According to the book of Romans, uh, he may well have been doing both and been correct in both instances. So far in our study of Romans, we've been concentrating on human rebellion against God, and we've seen... Indeed, Paul has explicitly told us that the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against men and women because of this rebellion. And in what way is God showing his wrath? How is that wrath being revealed? It's very, very clear so far what we have done. Number one, we have suppressed the truth about God. Number two, we have refused to glorify or worship God. And number three, man has refused to be thankful. And as a result, the human race has become darkened in their thinking. They've become fools. Nevertheless, up to this point, we have not been told specifically of anything that God has actually done 
to unleash his wrath on humanity. Now this changes. For the first time in the letter, we are told three times in succession that God has abandoned men and women to perversion. The sentence is, God gave them up. It's found in verses 24, 26, and 28. But here is the irony, and that is why I quoted Oscar Wilde. Man's punishment is to be abandoned by God. But of course, that is precisely what man has been fighting for ever since Adam's first rebellion in the Garden of Eden. Man has wanted to get rid of God to push him out of his life. In contemporary terms, he is saying, God, leave me alone. Go over there and sit in the chair. Should I ever need you, I'll call for you. But now, just shut up and let me get on with life. And so, God does. Like the father of the prodigal son, God releases the rebellious child, permits him to depart into the far country with his many possessions, all of his goods. Well, isn't that what we want? Yes, that's what man thinks that he wants. The problem is, it never turns out the way man anticipates. In fact, it turns out to be exactly the reverse. Men think of God as a miser who is keeping them from happiness, keeping them back from all that would make them happy with all of his laws and his commands and his precepts. If we could just be free of all of that, we would be supremely ecstatic. But it doesn't work that way. Instead of happiness, man finds misery. And instead of freedom, man comes under the debilitating bondage of sin. Uh, Paul's point here is that when people reject God and exchange his glory for the worship of the creature, he gives them over to their sins and the horrible consequences that follow. Uh, Paul is showing how the wrath of God is being, re is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. And one aspect of God's wrath is to give sinners over to their lust so that they experience the inevitable, horrible consequences of sin. That is to say, sin in itself is its own punishment. People think that sin will bring them fulfillment, that it will bring them happiness. And indeed, it may feel good in the short run. But God has designed a moral universe, and God has given moral laws so that if you break them individually <clears throat> or if society cast them off collectively, those laws turn around and break you. It's like the law of gravity. You can jump off of a 40-story building, you know, oblivious to the law of gravity, but uh, gravity is going to break you, you know, about 39 stories down, you know. Uh, at the fall, the human race was cut off from fellowship with the holy God and plunged into sin. And all men are born in sin, alienated from God. We are by nature spiritually blind, children of wrath, and under the just condemnation of God. We are not sinners 
because we sin, rather we sin because by nature we are sinners. And unless we are reborn spiritually by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will pursue a course of sin all of our lives. Unless there is intervention by God, unless his amazing grace grants us repentance and regeneration and then faith, then we will pursue a course of sin as long as we live. Because all people, apart from the grace of God in Jesus Christ, uh, have embraced whatever false gods they think will bring them happiness. Uh, so in one sense, this applies to the entire human race that is born in sin. On another level, we see it applies particularly to certain cultures down through history. At the Tower of Babel, proud sinners defied God, and he brought judgment on them by confounding their languages. Sodom and Gomorrah were so corrupt that God rained fire and brimstone on them and destroyed the cities as an example of his wrath against sin. Um, when God told Moses and Joshua to, the, to destroy the Canaanites, that was not capricious or arbitrary. For over four centuries, those nations had filled up the measure of their sin. And so God poured his wrath out upon them justly and righteously. Ancient Greece and Rome had their times of glory, but idolatry and immorality brought them down. The same thing is happening, is happening, has happened in the United States of America. And no political party and no Supreme Court will be able to save you. When a people abandon God, God abandons that people. That is true collectively, nationally, but is it also true on an individual level? All people without Christ are in sin. But when an individual brazenly turns his back on the light that God has given him and goes full bore into a decadent lifestyle, it shows that God has given him over to his lust. And if he keeps on going in that direction, he may eventually reach a point where his conscience, his heart is so hardened that he will never turn back. And there is no hope of salvation. Verse 25 explains the reason that God gave people over in their lust to impurity. Verse 24, to degrading passions. Verse 26, and to a depraved mind. Verse 28. And it basically repeats the truth of chapter 1, verses 21, 22, and 23. Because people did not honor God or give him thanks, their foolish hearts were darkened. Their foolishness led them to exchange the glory of the incorruptible God for idols. The truth about God refers to the truth that he has revealed about himself and about all things. God is not a projection of our ideas. God is not a figment of human imagination. God is. He exists in and of himself, and he has always existed outside of time before he spoke the universe into existence. Before there was time or matter, God is. He has always existed 
our knowledge of him, though there is some knowledge of him, Paul says, in creation and in his wrath, specific knowledge of God can come only from the Bible. God reveals himself generally through the creation. But to know God specifically, to know who he is, to know what he has done to bring about the salvation of mankind, you must have the scriptures to know how to be saved. And contrary to the claims of a postmodern world, this truth about God that is revealed in the Bible is knowable and it is absolute. One of the claims of postmodernity is there is no truth. That's what you hear trumpeted by the philosophers of postmodernism. There is no truth. Of course, whenever you hear that, you always want to ask the question, is that true? Is that statement true? You know, uh, this is truth. This is truth. This word is absolute. It is true. It is knowable. But sinful men exchange this truth about God for a lie, literally for the lie, which refers to the sin of idolatry. In chapter 1, verse 23, Sinners exchange the glory of God for idols. Here they exchange the truth of God for the lie that we can worship things other than God, all of which are mere creatures and not the creator. It is the lie that any creature can live independently of God and can be self-sufficient, self-fulfilling, and self-directing. As a result of exchanging the glory of God for idols and exchanging the truth of God for the lie, God gives these sinners over to degrading passions. So they exchange the natural sexual orientation for that which is unnatural. The word exchange implies that if you cast off God, you will serve idols. Now, that idol may not be made of wood or gold or silver. It may be a philosophy. It may be an idea. It may be material goods. It could be anything that attracts your attention and captivates your love more than God. The important thing to see here is the cause and effect relationship. The root cause is the sin of rejecting the truth of God resulting in worshiping the creature rather than the creator. By referring to God as the creator, Paul takes us back to the opening statement of the Bible, which, by the way, if you believe it, you can believe the rest of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you believe that is true, none of the rest of the Bible is any problem at all to believe. That is why men have attacked that truth so vehemently. If we can somehow destroy the truth that God is the creator, then everything else is suspect. Everything else can be brought into doubt. The Bible does not debate the fact of creation. It's not open for discussion. It simply states it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created everything and he spoke it 
into existence. God said re, re, repeatedly occurs in Genesis in 10 or 12 verses. And then throughout the rest of Scripture, as you read through your Bible this year, make note of the times that the Bible refers to God as the creator and takes uh, men back to that fact of creation. It's found all through the Scripture, all through the Pentateuch, and then all through the the historical books, beginning at, at Joshua, going all the way through Esther, and then in, in, the, in the wisdom literature, always talking about God as creator, God as the maker of all things. The Bible does that because it asserts God's sovereignty over everything. God is the creator, therefore God is sovereign. And it means as creatures, we are totally dependent upon him and we must be subject to him he is the only true God and he made all things for his glory that so when Paul mentions God is the creator he can't help himself he adds a doxology who is blessed forever amen it's as if he wants to get this bad taste out of his mouth after referring to men worshiping and serving creatures rather than the creator. Blessing, extolling, glorifying God forever and ever is the reason that he created us. The first question of the old Westminster Catechism. Question, what is the chief end of man? Answer, the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. He is in fact blessed forever whether we acknowledge that or not, all men ultimately will bow the knee and will confess that God is blessed forever. So the root sin is when we turn from God and replace him with the creature. Idolatry is the sin of worshiping anything in the place of the true God. And again, in, in America, we, we don't normally see people who bow down to, uh, to wooden idols and, and, and to silver and gold. Um, but there are many other forms of idolatry in America. If you, if you use God for what he can give you and then set him back on the shelf until the next time you need him, you are doing the same thing that idolaters do with their idols. There will be a lot of people in this uh, present pandemic who will find God very briefly until they no longer need him. Then he will go back on the shelf. Uh, self is really the root idol. Uh, self is the idol or self uses the idol to get what self wants. Self will worship whatever it can to get what it wants. Uh, we can fall into the idolatry of things that otherwise would be very good. Some people, in effect, worship the family. The family becomes the, 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 the end and, and the sum of all things. Family is certainly good. It's ordained by God. But listen, the order is clear in the Bible. God, family, church. That order. Family doesn't come before the church. The family can't come before God. 
You can't put your children or your husband or your wife, you can't put them before God, not and love them properly. You must first love God, then you must love your family. Material possessions are a gift from God. It's not wrong to enjoy such things. There are many men in the Bible who were godly men who were very, very wealthy. But if we put our hope in things, if we put our hope in our investments, then we've fallen into idolatry. You know, a lot of people are grieving beyond words this last couple of weeks because their portfolio has fallen so far. That is one good thing about not having much. You can't lose much. I saw last week where Jeff Bezos has lost $20 billion. I can't imagine. $20 billion. My retirement income is down about $200, not billion dollars. But there are people who are distraught to the point of self-destruction because they've made an idol out of their possessions, vocation, entertainment, sports, technology, computers, TV, all of these things can dominate our lives and become idols, taking the place of God, occupying the place that he alone deserves. This is the root sin, the sin of rejecting the truth of God and worshiping the creature rather than the creator, worshiping a thing that is made rather than the maker of all things. So we see the expression of man's sinfulness in verses 26 and 27. Three times Paul says God gave them up or gave them over. First in verse 24 to impurity. Secondly in verse 26 to degrading passions, namely homosexuality. And third, to a depraved mind. We find a similar expression in Psalm chapter 81, verse 12, where God responds to Israel's disobedience by saying, So I gave them over to the stubbornness of their heart to walk in their own devices. They abandoned God, God abandoned them. The phrase means that God took his hands off of their life and delivered them over to the sentence where sin takes its own Ugly course. It does not mean, of course, that God causes people to sin. It means he just lets go. What does God have to do for people to plunge headlong into sin? Nothing. Just let them go. It is only the grace of God that holds back sin. And if God just does nothing, man will plunge headlong into sin. So we see that sometimes with parents, a rebellious child. A parent may say, do what you want, but you'll pay the consequences of your actions. Um, the father of the prodigal son, again, that's what he did. He, he gave in to the boy's outrageous request for, for his part of the estate. That was like saying to his father, that was standing up to his father and saying, I wish you were dead. Because the only way that that, could, that that portion of the estate could lawfully be his is upon the death of his father. An outrageous thing. Totally lacking in honor. Totally breaking apart the fifth commandment to honor your father and your mother. So this is what 
God does. Uh, it reminds me of a verse in Psalm 106. You remember when God responded to Israel's demand for meat in the wilderness, it says, so he gave them their request, but he sent leanness into their soul. Sin is its own punishment. So first of all here, God gives sinners over to sexual impurity, resulting in the dishonoring of their bodies. Paul is clearly referring to sexual lust. God designed sex as a good gift, but he clearly commands that it be restricted to a monogamous heterosexual marriage. Any kind of sexual activity other than that is degrading. It is impure. It is unrighteous. In the context of a monogamous heterosexual marriage, the sexual union glorifies God as it expresses, expresses exclusive love between a man and a woman, and it is an earthly picture of a relation, the relationship between Christ and his church. Outside of that context, if we engage in sexual behavior, we dishonor our bodies, we defile ourselves with impurity. The word impurity is an interesting word. It refers to decaying matter like the contents of a grave, uh, rotting flesh. Paul says that if a man joins himself to a prostitute, he becomes one flesh with her, and in so doing defiles the Holy Spirit of God, the temple of the Holy Spirit, who dwells in believers. And he gives us a godly perspective of how we are to use our bodies when he says in 1 Corinthians 6, you are not your own. For you have been bought with a price. Therefore glorify God in your body. Sexual lusts begin in the heart. If you don't judge sexual lust at the heart level, it will lead you into temptation that will involve the body. Does it feel good at the moment? Of course it does. Otherwise we wouldn't do it. People, don't, people who do things that don't feel good or they don't want to you know, are, are basically classified as insane. But it will lead you to being enslaved to sin. Since sex outside of marriage is outside of the context for which God designed it, it never, ever, ever, ever completely satisfies. I was talking to a young man just a month ago who committed adultery, who ended up breaking up his marriage and said to me, if there was any way that I could go back and do it over, I would. I would give everything that I have if I could just somehow go back and not do it. But he can't. All he can do now is repent and go forward, which he, which he has, thank God. But this leaves men and women empty and broken. It doesn't bring the joy and the satisfaction that Hollywood says that it will. If you are given to sexual lust, then take whatever action you need to. That's what Jesus is talking about when he says, pluck out the eye or cut off the arm. Not literally doing that. 
where you could still lust with no eyes, but to take whatever action is necessary to remove yourself from that realm of temptation. And then secondly, Paul says that God gives sinners over to homosexuality, resulting in them receiving the due penalty of their sin. We live in a time where the homosexual community has so strongly influenced our godless culture that if you say you are against it, then that is sin. You are an intolerant bigot. Dr. Albert Moeller, the president of Southern Seminary, said 10 years ago that the most successful PR campaign in the history of the world has been uh, that of the so-called gay community. They have, they have in one generation taken something that was universally acknowledged to either be sin or perversion and they've turned it into such that if you are opposed to it you are the one who is the intolerant bigot. It, it's amazing. It is amazing what has happened. They've, they've, they've had the, the help of the media, of Hollywood, of television, and now, if you are opposed to homosexual marriage, you should be put in jail. People like you don't need to be walking the streets. Let me ask you something. Rhetorical question. You don't have to answer out loud unless you just really feel compelled. Uh, by watching TV, by looking at movies, by reading the newspaper, what percentage of the American population would you say identifies as gay or lesbian? I would think that if you just if you just looked at the media, if you just looked at television and movies and the newspaper, your guess would probably be what? 10, 15, 20% at least? Maybe more than that. The largest study ever done in the history of the United States on human sexuality was done by the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC, in 2013. The results were published in 2014. If you want to Google it, you go online, you can do that. 35,500 Americans were surveyed. That's a huge, huge number to take as your pool. And they found that 1.6% of Americans identified as gay or lesbian. 1.6%. And these people, they've turned the world upside down. They have literally turned the world upside down. Less than 0.7% identify as all the, other, all the other alphabet people that are out there. But you would think that it's 40% of the population. It has been very skillfully portrayed as a human rights issue so that those who oppose this lifestyle are anti-American. But God's word is not tolerant of homosexuality. It is unambiguous in declaring it sin. And Paul elsewhere in the New Testament includes it in the list of sins. 1 Corinthians 6, 1 Timothy 1. Why does Paul talk about homosexual relationships here? What is the, what is the connection in the context I think that it, that it best functions 
of an illustration as what is unnatural in the sexual sphere. Remember, he's been talking about idolatry, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. That's unnatural. You look at creation, you can see God's invisible attributes, namely his divine power and eternal nature. To, work, to turn around then and worship something made of wood or of stone is unnatural. Men and women, male and female, complement each other in a sexual union. A look at their bodies reveals that to be clear. And a man having a sexual relationship with a man is unnatural. Or a woman with a woman. It's unnatural. It's, it's like idolatry in the spiritual sphere. It is contrary to God's intentions for human beings to worship animals or human beings instead of the un incorruptible God is to turn the created order upside down. In the sexual sphere, the mirror image of this unnatural choice of idolatry is homosexuality. Paul uses the usual Greek words here for male and female which are used elsewhere in the creation account. His point is that homosexuality for either sex goes against God's intention and in creation. Now you're always going to have these people who say, oh, that was just Paul's opinion. He was a misogynist. Jesus didn't mention it. He absolutely did. Jesus, when talking about marriage, said, taking it all the way back to creation again, you know, in the beginning, God made them male and female. And for this reason shall a man leave his mother and his father and cleave unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Jesus believed all of the Old Testament scriptures. He believed all of it. He fulfilled the ceremonial and the civil law, but the moral law stands. Jesus Christ knew exactly what it said in Leviticus about homosexuality. And that was a part of the moral law, and it has not passed away. Again, it's, it's unnatural. It's unnatural. Two men don't go together sexually, nor do, nor do two women. So Paul says in verse 27 that homosexuals receive in their own persons the due penalty of their error. The error is not an inadvertent mistake, but rather the rejection of the true God for idols. I think Paul probably means that being delivered over to homosexuality itself is the penalty. And again, I've said this before, but you hear people who say God's going to judge America because of the rampant homosexuality in our culture. Listen carefully. Rampant homosexuality in our culture is the judgment of God. It doesn't mean judgment is coming. It means judgment has come. God has given them over to their own degrading lust. Any study that is done uh, about the gay lifestyle reveals that it is anything but that. Homosexuals, Lesbians are disproportionately unhappy to the rest of the population of the United States. Uh, 
dissolution of these marriages is three to four times higher than in the heterosexual population. No other group in comparable size experiences such intense and widespread pathology. Because sin can't ultimately make you happy. In any discussion such as this, we're always asked, are homosexuals born that way? There's no scientific evidence to date that would support that claim, although researchers have been desperately looking for it. But I would say that even if the inclination is genetic, it's still sin to practice it. All of us have a predisposition toward certain sins. That's just the truth, all of us. What, what entices you may not bother me at all. And what bothers me, what I am tempted by, you may think, well, who'd be tempted by that? There's an old joke about three preachers going out of town to a convention. They're on an airplane. One of them says to the other, he says, well, you know, he says, the Bible says confession is good for the soul. And he said, I thought I might just tell you up front, my weakness, my sin is, is alcohol. And whenever I come on a convention like this, I just I buy me a couple of fifths and just lay up in the room and just drink all the time. And the other one says, well, since you've said that, he said, I, I suppose I could confess to you as well that my, my, my weakness is women. And whenever I come at a convention like this, I go searching for women. And the third one said, thank you so much for being so honest, for making this confession. I must confess to you that my weakness, my sin is gossip. I can't wait to get back home and tell what I've heard. All of them were inclined to certain sins. That didn't mean they should practice them. Whatever your inclination to sin is, you are commanded to resist it. You are commanded to flee from it. You are commanded to obey God, to walk in purity, to walk in righteousness. Some of us may be genetically prone to heterosexual lust or to anger or to alcohol or to gossip. doesn't matter. There are still sins even if we are genetically predisposed to a sin. We are responsible before God not to yield to that sin. The good news is Jesus Christ came to deliver us from our sins. Paul includes former homosexuals in Corinth when he wrote his first letter to that church. Listen to what he said in, in verse 11 of chapter 6. Such were some of you. He's mentioned homosexuality. And he says, such were some of you. You were homosexuals, but you have been washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Whatever, whatever sin you are disposed towards, God delivers you from the power of that sin by Jesus Christ by his amazing grace. And so we're going to stand and sing that.